All right, well, we're going to continue doing this uh, study through the Gospel of Mark. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Again, I can't wait till we're actually together. This is um, something that we've had to adjust to, but it's still not normal. So I miss you, and I'm just glad that maybe we can look together at the Word of God and that, that we can be taught from God through His Word. And what we're seeing here is that apparently... God really wants us to see the nature of self-righteousness. Can't you tell that this has been something that's coming up? If you've been along with us in this study through Mark, that you've seen it again and again and again, that Jesus is confronting head-on this self-righteousness, this uh, hypocritical religion that the Pharisees have. It's just happening. It's a collision over and over and over again where Jesus is taking on the religious elite And he's confronting them. And so we're learning and having to face the realities of self-righteousness. You know, counterfeits are effective because they look like the real thing. You know, no one goes for the fraud when it's so obviously a fraud. Uh, You only go for the fraud when it looks really close to the real deal. And, And what we're learning here is that there are approaches to God that look so good, they look so clean cut, they look so nice externally that they're very hard to distinguish from the real thing. Uh, Where we're seeing that there's a false religion that the Pharisees had developed. There's a false gospel that is, is always being perpetuated that is confusing to people who can't distinguish it from the real thing, the real gospel, the true relationship with God. I actually believe that this is a big problem in our world today, is that there are false gospels uh, that basically are this. Christianity in its shell has been preserved. The outward forms have been preserved. Certain outward activities have been preserved, but the inward heart has been lost. And so a lot of people, they, 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 they try out the outside stuff. They try out the external stuff. And they think that they're trying Christianity. And when they get tired of it, then they don't like it. And it doesn't actually work for them. They end up walking away from it. But they never actually tried the real thing. They never actually got the gospel. They're actually inoculated to the gospel because they go, no, I already, I already tried the gospel. What they actually tried was a false religion that only posed as the gospel. And so what Jesus is doing and what Mark is doing in the section we've been studying is he's showing us again and again and again this conflict between the gospel that Jesus brings and the counterfeit of the Pharisees, the fraud of the Pharisees. They're colliding all throughout, and in these collisions, we are seeing more clarifying realities about the gospel. You don't want to be caught embracing Christianity, the external religion, and end up being without Christ. You want to have Christ. You want to have the real deal. And Jesus is again and again exposing the error of the false religion of the Pharisees so that we can understand the true gospel that he brings to us. We want to embrace the true gospel, not some Christian external form of religion. And so what's been happening, just look in your Bibles in Mark chapter 2. From Mark chapter 2 on to the section we're at this morning, there have been um, uh, opposing forces at play. Jesus and the Pharisees keep colliding. 
again and again and again. And each collision course teaches us something about the false gospel of the Pharisees in the true gospel of Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, you see there, that's when the, the four friends brought that paralyzed, paralyzed guy to Jesus. And Jesus healed him, and not only healed him, uh, forgave his sins. And what we learn right there is that if salvation is by strength, uh, then, then none of us are getting saved. What we see that salvation is not by strength, salvation is by faith. The guy can't do anything. He has no strength. He's a paralyzed, a paralyzed man, and he looks to Jesus, and Jesus heals him and forgives him. That's gospel. We can't do anything. And Jesus saves those who can't do anything for themselves. And then you get to the next section, chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, and Jesus calls Levi, the outcast, the tax collector, and that man is, is following Jesus. He begins to follow Jesus even though he had lived a life of sin and rebellion, even though he was an outcast. And all the Pharisees are upset about it. Remember that? And they, they can't believe Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. And then we find out that Jesus has this amazing and profound statement at the end of the section, verse 17, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, salvation is not by moral performance. Salvation is not by being good enough. Clearly, Levi, this outcast sinning tax collector, is the one who's saved. It's those who are sick. It's those who know they don't have a moral performance and can't morally perform. And in their sickness, they reach out to Jesus, and Jesus forgives. That's where we're clarifying the gospel. And then you get to chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, and this is where the Pharisees expect Jesus and his disciples to be fasting. And Jesus essentially says that, no, the true gospel is not about religious forms. It's not about outward things that you do. And he compares it. No, it's more like a wedding. And it's more like a wedding feast. It's like a relationship where there's joy and love and commitment, celebration. It's not about the external forms. And so we learn there that the, the, true, the true gospel isn't religious uh, ritual. It's not external forms of righteousness that, that impress the crowds. It's not that. It's not salvation by strength. It's not salvation by moral performance. It's not salvation by religious ritual. And then you get to the section we looked at last week where the, the Pharisees are all angry about Jesus violating their Sabbath laws. Remember their crazy Sabbath laws. And Jesus basically says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of rest. Salvation isn't by keeping these man-made rules. It's by coming to me, the Lord of rest. In other words, stop working and find your rest. Rest for your soul in me. You see, the gospel is being clarified, not by strength, not by performance, not by ritual, not by law-keeping, but by coming to Jesus in faith. It's a counterfeit to say that the gospel is something you got to do. It's some religious uh, performance that you got to put on. It's counterfeit to say that the, the true gospel is that. Religion is something that's a counterfeit. Religion says, do this. Here's what you need to do. Do this. Work hard. And the gospel says, here's what's already done. Believe. Religion is an exhausting attempt at self-justification. And the gospel is Jesus saying, come to me and I justify you. Recognize you can't justify yourself and trust me and I justify you. 
And now we come to our last section. We've had four previous sections that are all about these collisions of true gospel and false religion. And now we get the climactic uh, collision here. The climactic moment. The, and this is where, you know, after this section, the Pharisees are so fed up, they're actually going to go try to kill Jesus. They're going to start the plan to kill Jesus. Let's, let's read this section. And as we read, here's what I want you to do. Following at home, I want you to use your imagination a little bit. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's there watching. Here it goes in, in chapter 3, verse 1. It's a Sabbath. People are gathering at the synagogue, and imagine you're there. It says in verse 1, again, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue. You remember from the previous chapters, Jesus is immensely Popular. So there's probably a lot of people there crowding into the synagogue. This is probably, we don't know for sure, but this is probably the same synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus cast out the unclean spirit and so began to gain the popularity he now has. He enters the synagogue. If you're sitting there, you would see him come in. Maybe his disciples are following behind them. I imagine people are going you know, whispering back and forth, there he is. That's the guy. He's the one who heals. He's the one who speaks with authority. He's the one who's calling himself the Son of Man. He walks in. And a little detail here, it says, and there was a man with a withered hand. This is, would have been someone who, uh, the word withered is a word that is sometimes used to describe a, a plant that's been dried out in the sun. It could also literally be translated dried up. This man is a cripple. He has a dried up hand. And therefore, there's, there's some speculation here because he doesn't actually tell us much about this man. But uh, Luke, the parallel passage, says that it was his right hand. In a, in a right hand world, if you have your, your right hand crippled, you are unable to do many of the normal tasks of life. So uh, there are some traditions that say that this man was homeless. He was a beggar. He couldn't work. He was extremely poor. And he's there in the synagogue. And that would have drawn the attention of people. They would have noticed him. There he is in the synagogue, this man with a withered hand. And Jesus walks in. But he's not alone. Verse 2. And they watched Jesus. Well, who's the they? The they goes back to the previous section. Here it is, the Pharisees again. There's going to be another face-off, all right? There's going to be another collision right here. The Pharisees are there in the synagogue. And they're watching Jesus, it says. And so you could almost sit back and you see the two parties. Now, from the outside, if you didn't know better, you'd think that the Pharisees are there, of course, to worship. They're there in the synagogue to do what they normally do. They would read the Old Testament Scriptures. They would pray. They would listen to an explanation of the Scriptures. There would be a benediction, a kind of blessing. And you might think that that's what the Pharisees were there to do. But it actually says that they watched Jesus, listen, to see whether he would heal him, that is the man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. They're not there to worship Jesus. They're not there to worship God. They are there to accuse Jesus. Remember, they have their Sabbath laws. It's the Sabbath day. 
Remember, they got their uh, crazy, meticulous laws. We, we talked about them last week. You know, if you, you, you remember, if you drag a chair through the dirt and you make a little row in the dirt, they call it a furrow. You just almost planted. That doesn't count. That's, that's violating the Sabbath. You make a little hole in the dirt. A seed might fall in there. You're violating the Sabbath. They got their Arabs, little strings attaching other houses so they can violate the Sabbath while still keeping the Sabbath in their mind. They got their whole intricate set of laws. And here's Jesus. And he, he knows what they're thinking. He understands what's going on there. The Pharisees are, are, are just about had it. The grain fields in the last section was, was j- almost enough for them to go, okay, we got to get this guy. It was almost enough. They need another piece of evidence. And so another Sabbath day, this might even be the, the next Sabbath day on the calendar where they're all now in the synagogue. And the Pharisees are there watching intently. What's he going to do? There's the man with the withered hand. Is he going to heal him? Is he going to heal him? Because if he heals him, Ooh, that's a violation of the Sabbath law. And if he just keeps violating the Sabbath, we have a good reason to get this guy in trouble. And so they're watching. Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. That's why I love what happens next. The crowd is there. You're sitting there watching. The Pharisees are looking. Jesus is up front. Everyone wants to hear what he has to say In verse 3, he says to the man with the withered hand. No, he doesn't address the religious elites. No, he doesn't even talk to his own disciples. There is the cripple that probably everyone else ignored. And Jesus speaks to him and says, come here. Come here. Other translations uh, could translate it like this. Come stand before us. And that really is the idea. Come up front. In other words, Jesus is not doing this behind closed doors. He's not trying to hide this. He is saying in front of everyone watching. He knows the Pharisees are watching him. And he says, come up front, come up here. And that poor crippled man walks up. And you watch him as he goes down the aisle. All eyes are on him. All the eyes are watching him. What is going to happen? What is Jesus going to do with him. I hope you understand what Jesus is doing here. This is Jesus. He knows that the Pharisees got their meticulous Sabbath laws. He knows that they think it's wrong for people to be healed on the Sabbath. He knows what they think, and yet he is outrightly defying their religious rules. He's essentially picking a fight with their religion. He's saying your rules don't matter, your man-made religion is a sham, your heart is in the wrong place, and I'm defying it publicly, and I'm going to show that I don't adhere to your rituals, your rules, because your rules, all they do is deceive you. All they do is deceive people. You can almost feel the drama. as The guy's up front, you can almost imagine there's a dramatic pause, silence, in the synagogue as the man with the withered hand walks forward. What begins to happen is Jesus says in our text here, there's a question that he asks. There in verse 4, he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life, or to kill. They were silent. He asks a question that's actually pretty 
obvious to answer. He puts it out there. Is it better on the Sabbath? Here's, here's the law. Is it lawful to do good or harm? Here's your choices, good or harm. Is it lawful to uh, save life and preserve life or to take life, to kill? The answer's obvious. Everyone in the room knows the answer. Obviously, the purpose of Sabbath is what? Rest, refreshment, life, joy. That's the purpose. That's why God designed the Sabbath. So, so, so the question's obvious. The, the, the answer is this, the Sabbath is a, a day to celebrate life, preserve life, enjoy life. By healing, he would be doing exactly what the Sabbath is intended to do. They can't admit it. And so they're silent. For them to admit Jesus is right is to admit they're wrong. They can't do that. If they admit they're wrong, their system begins, becomes nothing. Their system begins to crumble. And what happens if their system crumbles? If their system crumbles, they are no longer in the position of authority and power they want to be in. And so they can't admit that they're wrong. They're sitting there silent. I love this. Look at verse 5. He looked around at them with anger. Our Lord is angry. This is a holy anger, a righteous anger. This is an anger born of love. It is the love that wants the best for his people, that the people are too hard-hearted to understand. And Look at it. It's an anger coupled with grief. He looks at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. They can't admit their sin. They grieve. Where Jesus is angry and he grieves. They're, they're, the Pharisees' hearts are so hard. They, they don't care about the crippled man in his withered hand. They don't care about admitting they're wrong. They don't care about confessing their sin. They don't, they don't want to do any of that. And so in defiance... And to expose them, Jesus then says to the man, stretch out your hand. The man's hand would have been withered, and some say that this maybe was polio. It might have involved, it definitely involved some sort of deformity. Definitely would have involved an inability to use that hand. To stretch it out would have been to defy the natural form of his broken body. And yet Jesus says, stretch it out. And there it is. It says, he stretched it out. There is Jesus demonstrating power to heal not only a sickness but a physical deformity and to restore this man's hand to its original design. And so the man stretches out his hand, and his hand was restored. Now you might think that there in the synagogue, in that moment, the whole place erupts in amazement, right? Is that what's going to happen? Maybe you're the one, remember, where you're sitting there in the bustling crowd and everyone's leaning in to see what Jesus does and you watch that man open his arm up and pull out his hand and it's, it's restored, it's, it's healed. And maybe you just want to erupt and, wow, look at Jesus. Surely he is Lord of the Sabbath like he says. But that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Look at this. His hand is restored, and what happens is suddenly there's a bustling in the back of the room, and you look back there and you see that the Pharisees are all filing out in, a, in, a, in an angry, bustling crowd. They, they go out immediately, and it says they held counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians, by the way, would have been opponents 
in any other scenario, but now they're willing to unite with the Herodians against Jesus, and they're going to consider how to destroy him. We need to think about what's happening here because, again, it is showing us a collision of worldview, a collision of false religion and gospel. These are colliding, Jesus representing and teaching the gospel confronts the false religion of the Pharisees, and this results in the Pharisees beginning to set in motion the very plans that will put Jesus on the cross. We need to analyze this. And one thing that we've been doing, and I think it's, it's the right way to approach this, is not to sit here and think, those Pharisees, I can't believe that they would do the things they're doing. I think the better way to read this would be to understand that there is a Pharisee inside us all. And that Jesus in these texts is showing the true gospel. And so that as we read, we need to understand what is he exposing in the Pharisees? What is he revealing about them? And how can we learn from what Jesus is teaching? Because listen, we are all drifting toward self-made religion. We're all drifting in that direction of the Pharisees. See, I want to look at this. This is a fascinating case study of false religion, false gospel. It's, it's what happens in, in churches that drift from the gospel. It's what happens in lives that drift from the gospel is that we become these kind of Pharisees. It's fascinating. What's, what's going on here is that these Pharisees, you, you can see it in the text, they're, they're clearly, they're hypocritical, they're callous to human need, they're unable to admit wrong, and they're even to the point where they're murderous in their anger. But here's where it gets fascinating. They're convinced that they are morally superior to Jesus. See that? They're convinced they're right. They're, they're convinced that this is the right thing to do. In other words, they are self-deceived in a severe way, aren't they? That they could actually begin to make plans to murder someone and think that they are right and justified in doing so. I think one kind of big lesson that we see here and we have been seeing all along is that this false religion grows in the soil of self-deception. They are utterly self-deceived. And self-deception begins a process of developing into the Pharisees we see in the text. In other words, hear this. To the degree that you deceive yourself, about who you really are before a holy God is the degree that you will drift into rank hypocrisy just like these Pharisees. Self-deception is the soil out of which our hypocrisy, our self-righteousness, and our false religion grows. 
self-deception. It's amazing how good humanity is at self-deception. We're masters of it. We're amazing at self-deception. You might even be thinking, though, what's, what's the big problem with self-deception? Self-deception, you might even say, is not that big a deal. Well, uh, self-deception is the reason why people can go on doing terrible things and not stop and actually even justify themselves in doing it. Self-deception is like an open gate that allows all kinds of other sins to just continue uh, happening because we are convinced that what we're doing is not so big a deal. Why does the alcoholic remain an alcoholic? Is because he's convinced himself that he's not an alcoholic. Why do broken marriages remain broken marriages? It's because each person in the marriage is convinced that their own issues are not the cause of the broken marriage. It's self-delusion. It's always self-deception. Uh, we can always be deceiving ourselves of the issues that we have and so convince ourselves that we're not actually as bad as maybe the evidence suggests. A divisive church member continues in his divisive ways. Why? Because he can convince himself of his own superior righteousness. I think when we think about this, if we just say we're prone to so towards self-righteousness, we'll all nod our heads in agreement and we go, yes, that's right. We have to see it. I want to give a lot of illustrations and examples of this because I think in, in illustrating it, we begin to see, oh, I do this too. Think about this. Let's think about some everyday scenarios. Uh, a teacher calls home, and the teacher gets a hold of the, 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 the mom of the child in the school, and the teacher says, um, I want to let you know that little Billy has been cheating. He's been cheating. And the mom's response in the moment is to react and get defensive. And she says in the moment, well, no, 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 no. Uh, you might have misunderstood. He's not cheating. Or maybe if you would have been a better teacher, he wouldn't have felt the need to cheat. What's happening there? You, you see, why do we deceive ourselves? What, what happens is we are uh, seeing the evidence uh, of something that's, that hurts who we are. That it's something that's showing us we're not as good as we like to imagine we are. And the truth is it's something that burns. It's something that we don't like. It's something we don't want to admit. And so we would rather construct an alternate reality that fits with our own preference than admit the hard reality. The truth stings. The truth is like a, like a coal that burns, and the moment we get it in our hands, we want to toss it out somewhere else. We'd rather believe a fantasy than believe the hard truth. A husband explodes toward his wife. If you would just get your act together, this whole thing would just be fine. And as he yells at her, he's completely forgetting the reality that perhaps his own explosive anger has something to do with their marital problems. That's too hard to admit. You admit that, it's painful. Oh, that's so uncomfortable. So you, you push the issue onto someone else. It has to be someone else's fault. I'd rather believe that it's all their fault. How about this? Let's do another one. A man is in bondage to secret sin. But he keeps telling himself, oh, it's, it's not that big a deal. I'm still in control. I still got this. It's okay. He's lying to himself. He's telling him. He knows it's wrong. He, he knows it's wrong. And yet he can tell him, no, no, it's not that bad. I'm sure other people do things like this or worse things. No, I got control over this issue. It's okay. 
so he won't admit how serious his sin is. Why? It's too hard to face. It's too hard to face if he admits the, uh, his own depravity to the degree that he has to admit of how broken he is, then he will crumble. His own ego will be shattered, and he doesn't want that. Friends, we have an almost infinite ability to deceive ourselves. We have techniques like these Pharisees that we use to deceive ourselves so that we don't have to face the uncomfortable reality that we are failures, broken people, sinners before a holy God. We have all kinds of techniques. And listen, we use them to try to cover up this horrifying reality that I might not be who I want to be. If we deceive ourselves, you know what happens? We become Pharisees. We become hypocrites. If we can't face who we are, if we can't look ourselves in the mirror, if we can't take our soul to task, we become Pharisees. I want you to see, we're going to look at four techniques of the Pharisees. I want you to see how they are doing this. Instead of receiving Jesus' correction, I want you to see how the Pharisees resist with every part of their being the gospel message. And we're going to see that we actually do some of the same things. First, technique number one, Pharisees emphasize externals. You know that's true because when you look at verse 1, Jesus enters into the Pharisees or to the synagogue and the Pharisees are there too. Think about this, the Pharisees are going to the synagogue. You know what that means? Is they still got the form. What's what's fascinating about this is the literal object of their worship is standing in front of them. I mean, they ought to be on their faces before King Jesus. They still got the form of attending, but their hearts are in defiance to their Lord. You see, the external's still in place. The external's still there. They're still going to the synagogue. They might still sing the song. They might still listen to the reading. They might still do all those things every time in synagogue, but their hearts are absent. They've got the externals. This is why that we will always have in churches across the world People who show up and their shirts are nice and tucked in, their hair is done, they got a smile on their face, they got their Bibles open on their laps, and you go home and they are cold and distant from their wife, they're impatient and angry with their kids, but oh, they have the external appearance of having everything together. You could be a chipper and positive woman. And actually be a mess inside, but you're scraping and clawing to do everything you can to present some sort of facade that convinces people, no, you're good, you're all right, you're okay. Because we love the externals. It's often the way people even use social media these days. Your life and internally, there are things going on, there are sins at hand, there are issues And yet, even to persuade yourself, even to convince yourself that things are okay, you want to present this kind of life that is perfect. And if my Instagram life looks good enough, then I can be okay with having a life, a real life, 
It's a wreck. Because I do X, Y, and Z, these external things that are good, I can be okay with A, B, and C, these eternal things that are bad. I can overlook those things. Emphasize externals and become a Pharisee. You emphasize the external more than you reflect on the realities of your own heart. Are there things about yourself you know you know, but you don't want to know, and so you want to sweep those away, and you want to only think about the things you're doing out here? That's a Pharisee's technique. A second technique that the Pharisees do is look at this. They accuse others. They watched Jesus, not to worship him. They watched him. Why? To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Oh, they watched Jesus. One of the ways they wanted to approve themselves One of the ways they wanted to make themselves feel better about who they really were, this is how they operated in their own self-deception. If they could accuse someone, if they could discredit Jesus, and in discrediting him, they could feel better about themselves, oh, that would be the way to go. There are people who have an eye toward others to accuse Why? Because the more people they can put down in their minds, the more people they can impugn their motives, the more people they can discredit, the more they can feel assured in their own goodness. You can imagine it happening like this. There's a church member that's been selflessly serving in the church, and as this man continues to selflessly serve others, there's another church member who's be a little jealous. Maybe the first church member is starting to get the attention of some leaders in the church, and the other church member sits back. And as the jealousy begins to grow in his heart, he begins to think about why that person might be serving in the way he does, and he says to himself, oh, he's just a goody-two-shoes. He's just doing this to win everybody's attention. He's all about human approval. Oh. See what's happening here. See, it's too painful to think that it actually might be true that that person is, has more of a servant's heart than him. It might be too painful for him to admit that that person is actually uh, more loving and generous and kind than he is. He doesn't want to admit his own failures. He'd rather discredit someone else. This is what the Pharisees are doing. I would rather discredit Jesus than face the reality that I'm wrong. You have someone in your family that's doing something generous and kind, and instead of being able to celebrate them, you've got to nitpick it. You've got to nitpick it because you, nitpicking it exposes the failures, and if you can expose the failures, you can remind yourself of how good you are and how they're no superior to you. But it's all a way to deceive ourselves. It's all a way to guard us from facing any harmful or hurtful or uncomfortable reality that we might not be as good of people as we thought. If I can convince myself that others are worse than me, then I can feel pretty good about myself. That's what the Pharisees did. Here's a third technique. Here's a third technique. Never admit sin. Even if it's obvious, even if it's right in front of you, just don't admit it. This is, again, what the Pharisees do. 
It's part of the way they deceive themselves and bolster up their own ego. It's part of the way they, they, they deny any of the exposing words and works of Jesus. They, they don't let Jesus expose their sin. They just deny it. They don't admit it. Because look, when Jesus in verse 4 asked them the most obvious question, what's it better? Is it, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They can't answer. Why? Because if they answer, they are admitting they're wrong. And if they admit they're wrong, they have to admit Jesus is right. And if they admit Jesus is right, basically their whole system begins to crumble. They've built their lives on this reality that they're good. And if that begins to crumble, what reason do they have left to live? Don't admit it. Deny it. Uh, They can't even speak up to answer the question because they've got to remain committed to their own delusion. There are people like this. They are so committed to their own delusion that they will believe lies that they're telling themselves. They will tell lies to others. They will tell lies to themselves. And they will believe lies. I remember having a friend in high school who got caught up in sin and she got in, made, made bad decisions and was in this downward spiral where one sin led to another. But the whole way she tried to cover it up. And she began this series of lies, this web of lies, and it got to a point where she was so committed to her lies that it was patently obvious to everyone involved that what she was saying was not true, and yet she was doggedly committed to that lie. Why? Because if you build your whole life on being good to admit you're wrong, it's to crumble. It's, you might even ask yourself, do I have anything we're living for if I'm wrong? See, that's what's happening here. If the Pharisees are wrong, your whole life's work comes crashing down. So they'd rather believe their own lies. Here's the fourth technique. Destroy the evidence. Destroy the evidence, or you could even say flee the scene. Whatever you do, you got to get rid of that thing that is exposing your failure. See, rather than deal with your failure, you got to get rid of the thing that's exposing your failure. It's like going to look in the mirror. You notice your face is a mess. You got junk all over your face. You haven't washed your face in weeks. And your solution to the problem is to break the mirror. <laughs> You shatter that mirror, and it won't tell you what's wrong with yourself anymore. This is what people do. Well, look at the Pharisees. What are they doing? Verse 6, rather than saying, you're right, Jesus, you're right, Jesus, we should be seeking to preserve life. They went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They want to destroy that which is exposing them. They want to eliminate that which is showing their sin. This happens. Marriage is too hard. Instead of accepting what it reveals about me, instead of accepting that God's intent for me is to learn in this, instead of humbling myself and learning in this and growing through this, you walk away. 
Some people would rather destroy the marriage than face reality. Some people commit to a church or commit to a small group, and that church or that small group, those friendships, end up being uh, exposing some of the issues in that person's life. Rather than having an accountability that exposes their failure and helps them along, they would rather not face the uncomfortable reality. It's too hard for me to accept. It's too hot for me to hold. I would rather live in a delusion. And so I'm going to leave the relationships with the people who love me enough to call me out on things. For the Pharisees, rather than confess, they'd rather eliminate Jesus. Rather than own up, they'd rather destroy Jesus. Sometimes it gets darker than this. Sometimes it's, I can't face my failures. I need to escape. I need to run. I need to flee the scene. Because if I remain here, my sin and my junk is exposed. I need to get out. I recently was hearing a story uh, about Eisenhower in World War II. And he was walking through these German towns that had been ravaged in the war, ravaged by the Nazis. And as they walked through these towns, he was incensed that there were these bodies everywhere, corpses, unburied. And when he went to the leaders of some of these towns, they would act like they knew nothing about it. Oh, I didn't know. He finally got fed up. And in one of the towns, he went to the, the mayor, and he went, and he said, listen, here's what you're going to do. You have to face reality. All the leadership, all the citizens of this town, everyone is coming out, and you're going to bury your dead. And so they went out, and Eisenhower made them do it at gunpoint. And they went out, and they, they, they did it. They buried their dead. They, they handled it. And after it was all over, the mayor and his wife went back to their house and hung themselves. Why? Here's why. It's because they knew. They had known all along, but the the reality of their own failures was too much for them. And they wanted to live in a delusion. They would rather live in a fantasy than face the reality that they were seeing their own people die and doing nothing about it. And when it was finally exposed, what did they do? They they ran. They, They fled the scene. And the only way they felt that they could run was by killing themselves. See, this is often how we live. We run. We ignore it. We run to entertainment. We run to a music. We run to a drink. We run to anything else that will uh, occupy our mind so we don't have to think about our own failures. We'll ignore it. We'll bury it. We'll rationalize it. We'll justify it. But listen, you've got to ask yourself, do you know? You know? Like, you know, but are you trying to Hide it. See, we are experts at self-deception. We have the same seed of the sin of these Pharisees in our hearts. We want to think we're better than we are. And so we will go to great lengths. We will maintain the external forms. We might accuse other people to build ourselves up. We won't admit our own failure. And if the failure comes out, we will flee. We will run. We will destroy whatever it takes to get that which is exposing us out of our lives so as to continue living in the fantasy world we prefer. Are there things 
you know about yourself. Sins that you know you're committing. But you don't want to know. You'd rather not know. The truth is just too uncomfortable to know. And so you accuse, cover, you blame, you justify, you destroy, you run. If you do those things, you are constructing a false religion that has the shell of Christianity, but is not Christianity. You see, the only way to confront the reality of your utter bankruptcy and your personal failure is to grasp what Jesus is teaching about the gospel. You can only stare into the dark abyss of your own depravity if you know that there is a love that is greater than your sin, that can deal with your sin, that has a solution for those problems. You will be crushed. You will be sucked into the abyss if you have no gospel. If you have no gospel, you will be sucked right into the abyss of your own depravity. The only way to face the uncomfortable reality about yourself is by knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this false religion says, be good and I'll love you. Jesus, all through these verses, is saying, admit that you're not good. Own it. Open up. Say it. You're sick. Just admit it. And if you can say that, if you can admit it, if you can look into the pit of your own moral failure, and look to me, and I save, and I forgive, and I heal. Jesus is not saying, This is what religion says. Jesus doesn't say this. Religion says, if you fail, if if you're a failure, you're going to disappoint me, and I'm not sure I can handle you anymore. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you are a failure. Come on. Can you see it? You are sick. Can you see it? But I love you. I came for you. This is the purpose of the cross. This is why I died on the cross, is to pay for sins. And then I rose from the dead so that I can then offer free forgiveness of sins to everyone who trusts in me. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You come to me, a broken, dirty, filthy, addicted, whatever kind of sin you have, you come with all of it to Jesus. And you say, I can't change myself. I can't help myself. I can't grow in Christ. I need a Savior for that. And Jesus says, I am that Savior. And Christians, in your sanctification, it's the same thing. You can't try to sanctify yourself. You need Jesus. You can't help yourself. You can't grow yourself. You can't be more mature on your own by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need someone from the outside. You will only deceive yourself. You need Jesus from the outside to heal you, free you, change you, transform you, forgive you. See, the gospel tells us there's another way. Religion is saying this. And here's where we're close. Religion says there's a choice. 
You can either be fully known or fully loved. You choose to be fully known, you let everything out. You confess it all, admit it all, you will never be fully loved. That's what religion is saying. The gospel comes and says, no, 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 no. The way that we experience the fullness of the love of God is by opening it up, confessing it all. The gospel says, no, you can be fully known. All your problems, all your failures, all your past, all your addictions, all of this that you've faced in your life, you can be known and you can bring it to God and say, this is really who I am. And the gospel says, in Christ, you're mine. You're beloved. You're forgiven. You're given the spirit to grow you, to transform you. This is my gift to you. It is not something you earn. It is free and it is yours in Christ. Don't give in to the false gospel of Pharisees. Receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says to you this morning, give up. Confess it all. Come home. Experience the amazing love of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Lord, we say we are self-deceivers. We confess it. We're very good at it. But Lord, we want to also say that your word reminds us that we are far worse than we ever thought. Our brokenness and depravity is more than we know. Our corruptions are deeper than we could imagine. We admit that. But we also say that in Christ, we are loved more than we could ever imagine. We are forgiven of all our sins. We have a hope that will not disappoint and that all my sins and struggles are not the final word on my life. Thank you, Jesus. We don't have to be slaves to a religion, but we can be free sons and daughters of the King of Kings through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.